Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Morning, church. I hope you keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at that Luke passage this morning as we begin our celebration of the Advent. Uh, what is Advent? Uh, it's a, from the Latin word meaning coming. And it's a celebration that the church has been uh, using for uh, centuries, thousands of years even, as we have looked at what Jesus came to do in what's called the incarnation. And yet, not only is it a celebration of what Jesus did once, it's also the coming that we await when he brings the second time, the second coming, and he comes back to restore a new heaven and a new earth in the way that he intends. So it's not just something we look at and say, isn't it great he did it? We actually live in this concept of hope of what he'll do again. Because we can rest our lives assured on this. If he said he would do it once and did it, should we have any doubts that he'll do it again if he said he would? So the Advent is the celebration of not only the first time Jesus came to earth, but the second time he comes back to reestablish everything that he's promised for us. We're going to be looking in this series on the Advent, on the coming, through the basic themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. The four gifts that were given through Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Today we're going to begin with the concept of hope. And hope is a confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is, is something we do often, hoping that if everything just broke perfectly, we might catch a break. Our hope is not based on catching a break. Our hope is based on the promises of exactly who God is and what he brings to all of us. I want you to notice that in the reading that we just went through, that three times the messenger spoke to Mary, and three times Mary responded to the messenger. It's very important that you see that our hope is interactive. It's not just a personal thing. It's an interaction between us and the Holy Spirit, responding to the promises that God has made. And the word the most high is used twice. The, the most high, it's an amazing concept that when Mary had any questions, the messenger's response was, God is able. The most high is entering. The most high is doing. The most high is promising. The most high is working. And when the most high is our hope, then we are taken out of the equation and we just receive what he's brought us. So we rest solidly in the fact that God is able. Or as Mary would say earlier, what's impossible for God? And this is what our hope is based on. So what I want to do today is I just want to simply walk through uh, just a treatment of how does the incarnation reveal hope to us both then and now. Because what you're going to see is that what Mary does is what we do. How Mary received hope in the gift of Jesus. You and I can receive hope in the exact same way even thousands of years later. So what does the incarnation reveal about hope then and now? That God is greater than we could imagine. It's the first principle that we have to put in place when it comes to the advent and to the incarnation of Jesus, that God is greater than we could imagine. Some people struggle that God could become a man, and theologians, even, even people who profess belief, are now beginning to question whether the incarnation is real, that, that God could make himself so small and, and still remain all God all the time. And yet some have dismissed the incarnation because it happened once, and yet, what difference does that make to us today? Well, it makes a lot of difference when you realize 
that the promises of Jesus coming once is also made that he's coming twice. And so the why is explained through the how. Translation. You can become like a puppy. I know this because I love dogs. I can make myself like a puppy. I can get on the ground with the dog. I can play with the dog. I can roll a ball with the dog. I can rub a dog's belly. I can spend time with this dog. And I could mentally understand what that dog is experiencing and going through. And I can work with that dog in an amazing way. That dog, however, can never talk philosophy with me. That dog will never be able to elevate himself to the level of humanity. You can play with a child. You could take a four-year-old and get on the ground, and you could play with their trucks or their dolls, or you could play with their games, and you could read them books, and you could do many, many things that that a four-year-old can relate to. You could lower yourself into the status of a four-year-old and act like it. Some of us do that every day, just professionally. And anyway, so you're engaged with this four-year-old. However, that four-year-old is incapable of understanding the safety precautions you put into their life. A four-year-old doesn't understand why they need to hold your hand when they cross the street. A four-year-old doesn't understand why they can't walk through a store by themselves or why they shouldn't run with sharp instruments. They will defy you and fight you, but they're not ready yet. They don't have the wisdom necessary to understand why you've put these precautions in front of them. In other words, I have a wisdom a four-year-old doesn't. And so what I want you to understand in translating The beauty of the incarnation is God in his wisdom could understand our foolishness, but we in our foolishness could not understand his wisdom. So God made a choice. He would come into our world in a way that would relate to us, and by relating to us, he could draw us out of our foolishness into wisdom. It's what we were talking about in our series in the Holy Spirit, and we'll continue to talk about, that the Spirit awakens us to what Jesus is. And even in the incarnation, do not dismiss it. It is a crucial, vital part of your understanding that God had to come in such a way to take away our foolishness and introduce us to wisdom, a wisdom only he has that we would never found on our own. And so what we learn from all of this is that there will be still some, and I'm not making fun but I'm going to give you a solution to this problem. There are still some that say, yeah, but God coming to us and, and abiding with us, but really making us pregnant. Once again, there are parts of hope that rely 100% on faith, not ignorance, faith. And so we must conclude that one of the things the incarnation reveals about hope, both then and now, is that God is greater than we imagine. Second thing I want you to understand is we are more sinful than we understand. That one of the things we learn about Jesus coming to earth in the form of a child and growing up amongst us and living amongst us and abiding amongst us, as John tells us he does in John chapter 1, is that we were more sinful than we could even understand. All gifts carry a message, right? One of the messages a gift carries is the person who gives you the gift loves you. But sometimes gifts have more intention. My dad gave me a piece of advice that has been passed down from males to males to males throughout time. Do not give your wife a Christmas gift that is the equivalent of a chore. That's what my dad said. You buy her that the day after Christmas on sale, but do not give her a sweeper unless that's what she asks for. Don't give her a chore as a gift. 
So every gift has a message contained to it, right? So just imagine at the Christian home, at our home, I get up on Christmas morning and there are three presents under the tree. One is a present wrapped by my colleagues here on staff, the people I get to work with. And I open this gift and it is a book entitled How to Find a Friend. (laughs) There might be a message contained in that gift. Or I open a present for my two boys and it's a year's supply of Rogaine. Or the elders give me this wonderful pamphlet called How to Find a New Career in Your 50s. Right? Every one of those gifts has a message attached to it, and only an idiot doesn't notice, ah, they're saying something. Please don't dismiss the gift of Jesus. Don't make it so sentimental that all you picture is this little brownish baby given to this little cute teenage girl who's so innocent and pure. If you sentimentalize the entire thing, you miss the point of the whole transaction. God did not give us the gift of Jesus in the form of a child so we would go, aw. He gave us the gift to tell us what we needed. Should we interpret the gift? Yeah. God became a dependent, weak human being so he could relate to us in a way that would expose our foolishness and bring us wisdom. God emptied himself of power And Jesus didn't come against his will. Paul celebrates this throughout his writings in the New Testament, in his letters to the individual churches, where he talks about Jesus chose to do this by his own good will. He came for us. The incarnation is significant because God became a human to accept and receive our punishment and the wrath that was due our rebellion. Pure and simple. Jesus came to pay that price. And the price he paid was not merely symbolic. Because sin is not symbolic. Sin is tangible and real and destructive. And Jesus had to come to offset all of those things in our lives because we could not have done it for ourselves. What the gift is saying simply is that you and I needed rescue. When you realize what God gave you at Christmas, you realize what he's telling you is you can't save yourself, so I will. And he came not to just be this symbolic, beautiful, sentimental moment. He came to actually be our living, dying Savior. Because the the gospel, the incarnation, is as much a part of the gospel as the crucifixion is. Don't, Don't say one is more important than the other because they all make sense. They're all telling us the same thing. That God had to come into our world to engage us in our world, to get our attention so he could rescue us by faith in the cross and in the power of the resurrection. Even his name, when the messenger says to Mary, you will name him Jesus, or in the Old Testament, it would have been Joshua or Yeshua. What does it mean? Salvation is from the Lord. So even his name is indicating why God gave us this gift, and this gift reveals rescue. If I would ever ask you, it might be fun. If someone ever says to you, I know we're not children anymore, but some in the room may be, but most of us aren't. If someone said to you, what'd you get for Christmas? We probably don't say that much as adults anymore, but you have an answer and it should be embedded deep in your heart. When someone says, what did you get for Christmas? You can say, Jesus, that was the gift I got. That's what Christmas brought me. All the other gifts will be thrown in dumpsters when I'm gone, but that gift will be mine forever. And, and remember when you were kids, like, I remember my grandparents used to always come over on Christmas morning, and there were four of us boys, if you don't know my background, I grew up in a family of four boys, God bless my parents. 
And my grandfather would come in and he would see some of the presents we had open and he would say, what does that do? And what does that do? And I remember one time he came in, this is an old story. So if you're under 40, Google it. But we used to get matchbox cars and have these orange matchbox tracks that we used to, nod your head if you're with me, if you're old. All right, I see there's some believers in the room. Okay, we used to snap these tracks together. You could make figure eights and ovals and you'd race your cars and it was a lot of fun. But we found that those tracks were the best whipping devices God ever made. So my, my dad came in the house, or my grandfather came in the house one time and saw three of us just pummeling each other, leaving welts and laughing our faces off. Whipping it, he goes, what are those for? And then we snapped them together and showed him the track. We were using them for a different purpose. I want to tell you this. You can use Christmas for a different purpose. And we have as a nation. I'm not going to be one of those guys that said, don't exchange gifts. No, no, but don't give up the greatest gift you've ever gotten for a gift that doesn't matter. And don't trade one for the other. Don't use it for something it's not supposed to be. When someone asks you, what did you get for Christmas? The answer is, I got the son of the living God. What does it do? It rescues me and you. It is our only hope of salvation. He's the king who came to save us. He came to rule as our king, not with power, but with beauty and mercy at a costly sacrifice. So what do we, what do we know about hope both then and now? Is that he's greater than we thought and we were more sinful than we understood. Thirdly, God is more loving than we thought. And that God is more loving than we thought. You see, God chose to allow himself to be limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrow and death. Now see, here's my, here's my concern. Because most every year, when you come to church around Christmas time, or you come to church around Easter time, you hear basically the same message. It's not because we don't have anything new to say, because these are very, very important pieces in the gospel story, the incarnation and the resurrection, and the crucifixion, all together on those weekends. But my fear as a pastor is, some of you have heard this story so many times that the minute I begin, you're like, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, Mark, I, I heard it. But tell them, no, I'm talking to you. If we don't understand the price Jesus paid, we will never understand the love he gave. Because love makes you vulnerable, and love costs you something or it isn't loving. And so when we think about what Jesus did, I want you to imagine the God of the universe who can create this world with his mere thought, all he had to do was say, exist, and everything came into existence. With that much power to humble himself, to get on the ground like we're four-year-olds and play in our world, to capture our minds, our attention, and our trust. The price that he paid to do that. Just think with me, like you've never heard this before. Reason with me. Jesus had to learn to read, to write. Jesus had to learn to cut his food. Jesus had to be potty trained. Jesus had to learn to walk. He had to learn to play safely. Jesus had to learn things that every child had to learn. And he willingly submitted him to that. Not only did he go through that, but Jesus, he learned to work hard. He just couldn't make things happen. He had to work. Probably for his father, a carpenter, in some capacity. Maybe when Joseph passed away, Jesus was the breadwinner for the home. He had to work hard. Jesus never had money. He, he, was, he chose to be poor to understand and show us how we are to interact with the poverty of the world we live in. Jesus could have been rich. He chose not to be rich. There's a lesson for us in that, that he decided to give away what he had so others would have something. You see, he went through the horrors of pain and humiliation and rejection 
He, he underwent the process of being lied about and that being used against him to cause his death. He went through the pain and shame of, de- of defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace. And yet, I want you to see Isaiah 53, 11. This is what the prophet said about him. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Do you know what we learned there? Every price that Jesus paid to love us, he thought it was well worth his time. Isaiah said he'd do it again. He would choose to go through all of that for you and me. He didn't give us just a gift one time. He gave us a gift that resonates every single time with love and peace and hope. You ask Jesus what he got for Christmas? Us. Every single one of us. Whether you're a believer in this room right now or not, I am telling you that Jesus' love for you is unconditional. He loves you. And all he asks is that you love him in return. And how do you love him? By accepting his death, burial, and sacrifice as your greatest gift and receiving him then as the Lord you can trust, the guidance you need, and the hope of your life. And then you are what the Bible would call a follower. So what did you get for Christmas? I got Jesus. What did he get? (laughs) He got ripped off. He got me. And that's good news for at least one of us. So how do we find hope? How do we take those three truths and implement them? I want you to look at what Mary's interaction is with the angel, the messenger. Because what Mary does to receive her hope, you and I can do to receive ours. And it's a simple formula. I don't want to make it so simple that people roll their eyes, but I want you to understand that what Mary goes through is a very human response based on faith that provided hope. So let's begin. How do we find hope? Well, you do what Mary does. This may be the first time in history that somebody actually understood how God was going to fulfill the promise he made. In fact, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, one of my favorite uh, authors, says that Mary may be the first Christian because she's the first person who responds by faith to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, which I think is a pretty cool thing. But let me tell you about Mary. She didn't climb a mountain to get her insight. She didn't change overnight. She didn't do things that made her popular. She simply did three simple things when given the opportunity, and it changed the trajectory of her life. First of all, she considered. It's very simple what she does. Look with me at verse 29. The angel says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. That seems like a little simple moment here, but I celebrate it because here's what I want you to understand. Mary did not turn her mind off to trust God. So many people think that Christians are just blindly believing anything they hear in a room like this. No. Faith requires a sense of consideration. Reason with me, the scriptures say. God is not concerned at all that you have questions. Okay, you got that, church? In fact, if you don't have questions, you're not engaging because how do we love the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, strength? Not just, not just our feelings, but our minds. And Mary has questions. Mary stops and she thinks, how can this possibly be? And she reasons through those questions. And then she does an amazing thing. She questioned. She considered and then she questions. And her question is so legitimate. Listen to it. But I'm a virgin. Oh, come on, church. Everybody relax. That word's okay in this room. 
She's basically saying, so I'm going to have a baby and I've never been with a man. Now, some critics will tell you that the word virgin, and they're correct. In the Hebrew, it can mean a young girl or it can mean someone who's never had intercourse. Now, when Mary responds that she's a virgin, she's not talking about her age, right? It's pretty clear here. She's saying, I couldn't be pregnant because I'm a God-honoring Jewish girl who would never have fornicated or been in an adulterous relationship. So when God calls on her and the angel says, you are highly favored, she said, I like that. I'm not sure. In fact, the, the word that she uses up here is greatly troubled, means she considered and pondered and thought. Then she comes back with her question, but I'm a virgin. She has a reasonable reservation. Would you not disagree? Yeah, her point is, this can't happen. This doesn't work this way. And then she pauses because what she knew about God answered what didn't make sense in the real world. And the questions that you have are okay. The questions you and I have are okay. God is not offended by our doubt unless we choose our doubt over trust. You see, because if your questions about how God is going to do something, how he's going to fix you, how he's going to end your addiction, how he's going to fix what you've shattered, those are great questions. Read the book of Job. Job goes after God with some deep, like, for-the-throat questions. God doesn't get mad. God just displays his power. And what he's asking Job to do in the book of Job is, do you know that I'm good and wise? Because if you know that God is good and wise, bring your questions. If you doubt the goodness and wisdom of God, your questions lack faith. So Mary doesn't lack faith by questioning God. She actually shows faith by reaching in and trusting and bringing it to him. Then she comes to this conclusion. After she weighs all of it, she says, is anything impossible for God? And the answer is no, because she knows who has told her. And the messenger says, no, God is going to, to bring pregnancy upon you by the Holy Spirit, and it will be his son, the Most High. Remember, when the Most High is working, you and I don't have to be Most High at all. We just have to participate. Just be open. Just let the Most High do what the Most High does. And this is what Mary does. Mary shows what real people who really respond to the gospel do. We bring our doubts to God, sincerely, honestly, and humbly. We are really good, and I, I'm, I'm going to include you in on this. I'm going to generalize, but I think I can. We are really good at doubting our trust and trusting our doubt. And what Mary does is the opposite. She doubts her doubts and trusts her faith. Because when your faith is in who God is, good and wise, you can live the rest of your life walking in faith. So Mary does. So she considers, she questions, and thirdly, she submits. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. It doesn't make sense. She doesn't have a husband. She's never had intercourse. And she's like, I'm pregnant. She announces it right here. I guess I'm pregnant then because she trusted God and submitted to him. But don't doubt for a second. This is where when we sentimentalize Christmas, I worry a bit. I worry that we can turn it into something so cute that it just appears on cartoons for the next 28 days. The truth of the matter is it costs Mary a lot to submit. Don't doubt that for a moment. How many times in the gospel story do you hear Jesus being asked the question, so where's your dad? You think Mary wasn't known as that girl? Mary has to go and leave town because she's pregnant. 
And she goes and she stays with her cousin for a period of six months because she knows what they will do. They could take her from her home and stone her in town. The price she pays to submit is not this sentimental awe moment. It's actually the true cost of following Jesus means that you may lose friends, you may lose reputation, you may lose status, you may lose a lot of things to trust and submit, just like Jesus did. Mary doesn't know if Joseph's gonna sign up for the deal. Think about that, fellas. Your girl comes to you and says, yeah, guess what, I'm pregnant by God. Really? And we know that Joseph is like, I'm out. And then an angel shows up and says, no, you're not. And he's like, no, I'm not. And he stays with Mary. But see, the risks are real. This is a real world. This is a real couple. This is not mythology. And yet you have this moment. She'll be disgraced. She'll be ostracized. She'll remain poor. She has to pack up her new family and go to Egypt for two years to stay away from persecution. The joy that would come from her obedience would not come without great cost. So for all of us walking in this faith, she goes to see Elizabeth. She's wondering, what has happened to my life? I considered, I questioned, I submitted, and now look, I have to go hide out. I'm only doing what God said. Why am I the villain in this story? And she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. Now, many of you know that Elizabeth was elderly and should not have been able to become pregnant, but she and her husband, as promised by God, delivered a child. He would be the last Old Testament prophet named John the Baptizer. And he is born of the Holy Spirit as well. And so Mary appears at her cousin's door, and it's interesting, the conversation. When she goes to the door, Elizabeth feels her child celebrate in her womb. I call that life. It's alive, it's real, it's human, it's of God. And the baby celebrates. And she said, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? She doesn't know what Mary just went through. She just knows that Mary has got the Messiah. For when I came to the door, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Oh, blessed is she who believes what the Lord has said to her will be done. Talk about affirmation. God is always going to affirm your faith, even when it costs you a lot to have it. And so Elizabeth shows up and says, blessed is the woman who's letting God do what he said he would do. For those who seek, let your heart hope. Consider what the incarnation means. Question all you want by faith. And then submit. Trust it. Let it happen. God is not coming to Mary because she's great, and he's not coming to you because you're great. God is coming to us because he's great, and he's got great love for us and compassion and mercy, and he desires us. And Jesus said, Father, I'll go. If it rescues them, I'll go, and he came. Christianity is not about what God can do for me. Christianity is about what God can do in me, and then in me through the world. One of my favorite parables was written by a preacher who had an experience and he realized what had happened and I love it. I'm just going to read what he wrote. He had lost his little travel alarm clock. He always kept this one by his bed because it would wake him up but not disturb his wife. He couldn't find it one day and so he tried to remember the last time he had it. He thinks he took it into the living room when he took a nap one afternoon but he couldn't find it in there and, and so he said if I would have found it in the living room there would have been no surprise, no joy. It would have just been I did it on my own. But when he couldn't find it, he was very frustrated. A couple of days passed, and he was really discouraged, racking his mind, figuring out how could he find that alarm clock. Then one day, he suddenly heard it, off in the distance. He went into his preschool son's room, 
walked around as it got louder and louder. He found it in a huge tub of Legos. He picked it up, he walked into the living room. It was still beeping. He set it down on the coffee table next to his wife. She looked and smiled. They both shook their head and she said, where was it? And he said, it was in the tub of Legos in our son's room. He said, then he realized, and these words came out of his mouth. He said, if, if it hadn't found us, never in a million years would I have found it. And that's the story of the incarnation at Christmas. Never in a million years would we have found our rescue. So he had to find us. It's not a sweet story of a little baby. It's the intentional story of a loving God who has come. You see, Mary does not magnify God for what he's doing in her. Mary magnifies God for what he's including her in. The incarnation is God including us into his kingdom a second time. So this morning, do you have a hope? Do you have a hope that changes and challenges your faith? Because all it takes is consider who he is. Ask him why he's here and submit to what he calls from you and you will walk a walk of faith and we will celebrate hopefully together all that God has done. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.